This episode of Awards Chatter is brought to you by Universal Television, presenting Girls 5 Eva. Girls 5 Eva follows a one-hit wonder 90s girl group who attempts a comeback while hilariously navigating family and relationships, plus the joys and pains of middle age. The show stars Sarah Bareilles, Renee Elise Goldsbury, Paula Pell, and Busy Phillips. Don't miss the series critics call the funniest show on television. Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series and all other eligible categories. Hi everyone and thank you for tuning in to episode 64 of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporter's Awards Podcast. I'm the host Scott Feinberg and on this episode we are joined by one of Hollywood's hottest rising stars, Gerard Carmichael. What Amy Schumer was last year, Gerard is this year, a young stand-up comic who all of the world is getting to know and love through televised stand-up specials and a self-titled series of his own. The 28-year-old is the co-creator, writer, and star of NBC's The Carmichael Show, a comedy series, just renewed for a third season, that is shot in the traditional multi-camera live audience format, but unlike most shows shot in that way, deals with very serious issues in very funny and often edgy ways. The show and Carmichael have blown up together over the last couple of years, during which he's also done a stand-up special directed by Spike Lee and stolen scenes in Neighbors and its recently released sequel. His fans include Norman Lear and Louis C.K., and now it seems Emmy nominations for both his series and himself are within reach. Over the course of our conversation, we discuss how, as a kid, he mapped out his future down to a T. We talk about the drive and ambition that motivated him to move from North Carolina to Los Angeles. He explains why he turned down a major role on New Girl and others along the way because of his unwavering drive to make a show of his own. He opens up about how he came to know Bill Cosby, the man who anchored the biggest sitcom of all time that starred a black man before Cosby scandal hit, and how he then decided to skewer him after it did. And he talks about how the original pilot of The Carmichael Show was not picked up, but how he nevertheless managed to convince NBC to give him a second shot, which has resulted in the success that he enjoys today. So without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Gerard, thank you so much for doing this. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Totally. And before we talk about all the great stuff that's going on right now for you, let's just set the scene of how this all started. And so the generic question to begin with, where were you born and raised and what did your folks do? I am from uh, Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Father, a truck driver. Mother was a secretary. I don't know why that sounded like it sounded like a Robert Frost <laughs> poem. Mother was <laughs> just out of nowhere, just like tending the lives. My mom <laughs> was a secretary at a hospital. And yeah, and uh, I grew up there, born and raised there. And uh, I don't know at what point I stopped. Did I just go into fun, interesting childhood? With <laughs> yeah, I know. Hey, yeah. I mean, so- also where it started, it really it should start at you and I meeting downstairs. Downstairs. In the- in the hall, it was this long corridor, and we greeted each other. I mean, it hasn't been that it's since like Hamilton and, and Aaron Burr. Or, yeah, right, right. Just type of almost like we were dueling. Yeah, pride of Burr. Right. <laughs> I was just walking toward each other, just for a very casual. Hey, man, how's it going? It was, it was dramatic. I loved it. it was dramatic, yeah. So, growing up, what sort of TV and what sort of comedy did you consume? Oh man, all of it. Yeah. <laughs> all of it. I watched everything. I would watch. Um, you know, from the Nick at Night sitcoms, mm-hmm. a, a lot of those shows from just being at, like, my grandmother's house, soap operas, 
follow Erica Kane's story for a little bit. <laughs> you know, right. I was well versed in Blake Carrington, and I was, you know, <laughs> who shot Jr. was happening. Uh, Wonder Years. Did I hear made some Frasier? Oh, a lot of Frasier. A lot of Frasier. <laughs> very, very well written show. Yes. Cheers. We love Cheers and Martin and. <laughs> Animaniacs. Now, Tell me when to stop. No, just go into it. I mean, I, I was reading some other interviews you've done to prepare for this, and I thought it was very funny where you were describing, like, you know, there were a lot of things that you were watching that nobody else that you knew was watching, right? Yeah. A lot of people view things, you know, according to who looks like them and, you know, whose background is similar. And so certain shows we just weren't watching in the hood, if you will. <laughs> you know, it just, you know, the collective we weren't necessarily. Right. And not all. There were some, but for the most part, I would watch Martin with my friends and watch Frasier <laughs> to go to sleep. You know, like, you know, right. like, as I went to sleep, I would watch it later. And right. Just like Cheers and all these things that uh, Murphy Brown, you know, all these shows that are great. And that that's not to say I don't even want to make it sound like it was just a, a black or white thing, although... You know, I'm sure that hints of that, but it was more so it's just like I said that the language, how the, the language sounded, you know, and it was just different languages. Sure. Now you really, it sounds like, figured out what you wanted to do from a very early age, not just generally even, but very specifically, right? Yeah. Yeah. I wanted a show on NBC since I was probably like 13 years old. I remember telling my brother, well, my brother reminds me <laughs> of me telling him that and just like, you know, NBC Thursday nights, 8 o'clock. That's all I wanted. So two of three is not bad, right? It's Thursday. I know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I love, I mean, must-see TV. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know. Was... Have you read the the Warren Littlefield? Oh, it's terrific. Top so of the great. Rock. Top of the yeah, Rock. Yeah, oh, yeah, it's yeah. so great. It's yeah. so great. Just that era is so amazing for television. Well, partly because you could still have a massive number of people watching a show before it got all fragmented like it is now right yeah cable and streaming and it just changed the game and you can still achieve numbers you know you look at the big bang theories putting up touched by an angel numbers yes exactly (laughs) it's doing very very well it's just like you read the numbers for them and you're just like is it in 1998 (laughs) it's great It's It's, it's really great but i think it has to build i think the lifespan of so many shows, especially in you know this field, are, are so short that it, it doesn't have the time to build and grow. So you knew what you wanted to do, but a kid who's not funny might have had that same goal. When did you realize that you actually were funny? Eighth grade. <laughs> I remember. I almost remember it specifically. Yeah. I almost remember a moment. I had a teacher, Kwame Nairi, who uh, was as aggressive as his name sounds <laughs> who I loved and was so um it, it, we would do these debates and uh I remember one debate just sitting down and sitting across from uh, they, they asked if you agreed or disagreed with something that a man in an article did and I'm the only one that agreed and the rest of the class disagreed and I remember this feeling of like well this is gonna be fun <laughs> it kind of informs like my sense of humor to this yeah. day yeah, what sort of saying things that you know are going to get a reaction from people, right? Or just going against the tide sometimes, what's not expected of you. Yeah, well, you know, what's fun is finding the truth. It's a better argument because I try not to just be a contrarian for the sake of, right. you know, and just because then it's shock value and it doesn't have any value. It doesn't have any meaning. So what's fun for me are, are discovering these truths that I really feel. Yeah. And then you argue it with genuine passion and it's fun. And don't get me wrong. Sometimes I like to I'm just from an argumentative family. Right. 
Well, that we should talk about also because the Carmichael show, which we're going to come to, is really in a lot of ways inspired by your own family dynamic growing up, right? So Absolutely. Your parents encouraged debate and discussion. Was that what it was? Always. Actually, two days ago, and I was getting ready for taping, I was exhausted, and I was talking to my sister about my niece, and I knew she loved Beyonce. I asked her if she saw Lemonade, the visual album, and... My sister said, no, it's too adult for her. I'm not going to show it to her. She shouldn't see it. And and I argued with her for an hour and a half. I was exhausted. I was like, I need to go to sleep. I was like, I argued with her for an hour and a half. Yesterday, I find out, oh, yeah, she'd already seen it. My sister just wanted to know why I thought that she should funny. be able to look at it. Wow. And it was just me yelling, it's art, it's current, it's popular, she, she loves music, she should be, it's me being really passionate. And my sister knowing, my niece had already seen it. Right. And just like, already, she <laughs> just, showed just it to her as soon as it came out. And I'm just like, it doesn't matter, she shouldn't be so sheltered from art and all these passionate arguments. And my sister's like, oh yeah, no, she, she saw it. A week ago. (laughs) (laughs) So somebody with this kind of passion and intelligence and drive, did you find it frustrating what options were available to you in Winston-Salem? Yeah. Once you discover the world outside of what you've known, you know, for me, I just wanted more of that. When you grow up in certain neighborhoods, and that's, I think there's a truth for a lot of people, even if it's a more affluent neighborhood, but growing up in the neighborhood I grew up in, what you expect from the world and what you think you're capable of are kind of naturally inhibited. That's the biggest fight, just to, to break down that inhibition. And from my sister, I say my sister, it's my sister-in-law, she's mm-hmm. just been around forever, <laughs> um, uh, helped, and teachers just helped show me a light into a, a world that I didn't know was mine. That's the most important thing, I think, you know, growing up the way I did. So what inspired the decision to actually make the move to L.A.? What was going on in your life when that came about? It was a kind of perfect storm of a lot of things. It was uh, I always wanted to do it, always had a, a love for art and entertainment. And I thought about stand up comedy. A, a friend of mine, Ashley, refused to talk to me until I tried stand-up comedy. <laughs> she was like, I'm, she really, really pushed me, being a great friend, me being frustrated, not doing anything with my life. A guy comes into my store. I'm working at a shoe store. Okay. You know, we're making small talk. Uh, like, what do you do? He's like, I'm an actor. I live out in L.A. I'm like, oh, really? Like, man, I always wanted to go to L.A. And he's like, yeah, just move. And I was like, yeah? <laughs> he was like, yeah, yeah, just move. And I was like, what, what do you do? And he told me about West Side Rentals. I'd never even been to Craigslist. Told right. me about Craigslist. Right. I remember going to the register and uh, pulling out the receipt paper and writing right. those two down. <laughs> and then just making that decision. I was just like, yeah, I'm just going to go. So how soon after go. were you out of there? Uh, a couple months. Wow. You know, August 8th. is when my, my sister-in-law bought me a plane ticket one way. <laughs> good luck good luck yeah. and we just did it so true or false I've read you arrived here on Friday mm-hmm. and Sunday you were already doing stand up yeah yeah I arrived here on Friday went to the comedy store watched the whole show stayed till 2am and then um, that Sunday night I was uh, doing the open mic there so that takes balls right <laughs> I mean <laughs> Yeah, just a lot of confidence. Yeah. A lot of just, uh, that's let's do it. I mean, how much stand-up had you done to, at that point? Uh, none. <laughs> <laughs> so that begs a question, because we had maybe two months ago Amy Schumer in here. And yeah. I asked her, 
did stand-up come naturally to you? And she just laughed right in my face because she said it doesn't come naturally to anyone. However, <laughs> it sounds like that's not true. If I'm being honest, I think, you know, there are people that it does come. I mean, Dave Chappelle does God-given talent and obviously works incredibly hard, but it's such a gift. I think that there are guys that just kind of have that ability or it's what they're supposed to do. And maybe the gift is just the excitement for it, the passion for it. But it is, I think, that coupled with my, you know, I think drive to really try and figure it out just made it. I, I tried. I figured it out pretty fast. How did it feel and has it evolved when you're up there? Are you riding on adrenaline? Is it fun? Is it like, you know, how would you describe your mindset when you're up there? I mean, at its best, it's the most fun thing in the world. Just to be up there and sharing, especially I like new thoughts, you know, and so especially with new thoughts and just you believe that this is going to work and then it does and you're excited or it doesn't and you got to figure it out and you know something's there and it's a Rubik's Cube. It's always a way to figure thing out and you fix one side and you, you know, the other side's all messed up. So how much of it when you're up there, at least at the beginning, maybe it's changed now, but was... Pre-planned versus improvised. Are you a big improviser? Now, more so than uh, in the beginning, I would write every word. And I would write, I, I did this weird thing where I would write in the room right before going up. Really? It would just kind of hit me. Just like like one thought would spark the set. And mind you, at that point, you're doing five minutes or three or <laughs> whatever yeah, right, amount. Right. But like at the improv open mic, I never did the same set twice. I remember just like... Any week that I was up, and I would write in the room, I would sit in the back, and it would just hit me. Or I would go outside, and it would just hit me, and I would write down really fast and then go in and do my set. And so it was always just this constant just trying to pick from thoughts. And and that's where it's fun to be on stage and to share the new thoughts. Right. So you got here in 2008. You're doing stand-up increasingly throughout the next few years, right? And I have read that in 2011... You were approached by New Girl, the TV show, about having a part on that, and that you said no, even as a guy who was not yet killing it. Yeah. If that's true, that can't have been an easy call. I remember not going in and then eating a corn dog for dinner. <laughs> <laughs> and I fell asleep on a deflated air mattress. Right. And just, uh, just me and my dreams keeping me warm. Oh <laughs> no, it, I mean, it just wasn't. For me, it wasn't the thing that, you know, I'd set out to do. I wanted the show that ultimately doing, but, and it has to be mutual. I have to contribute as much as it contributes to me. And yeah. if I can't find that in the role, or, or then then why, what are you doing? Because the concern is that you then become known as somebody's sidekick or somebody's whatever. Yeah, like, well, that and just, I just didn't see it directly contribute to what the ultimate goal it was. That was my first audition, mind you, mm-hmm. which is a, you learn a hard way that, and so do your managers at the time, that when you're like, yeah, yeah, if, you know, if it's like offered, I'm not going to do it. I said that before going in, yeah. but I just knew, I wanted to, I was like, oh, it would be a fun audition. I remember the part was still written for like a, a Jewish guy at the time, and I remember, <laughs> I remember delivering the line, I'm super Jewish, <laughs> you know, and it was a fun, it was a fun time, and then, right. uh. And then you get the call back or whatever, and you're telling your managers, you're like, hey, I'm not, I'm not. <laughs> and they're like, you're new, you're new to each other. And they're just like, yeah, sure. Because they, sure, did, they didn't, th- they thought you'd cave when you see the, yeah, the money or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And then, yeah. 
No. <laughs> but that takes right. a certain kind of guy. I mean, that's like the fact that that you had this ultimate goal of what's now come to be does not mean that it was a, a realistic, uh, not not that it was real, but it was a long shot. It's always going to be a long shot yeah. for anybody, right? So, but you never doubted that you would ultimately get a show of your own at some point. Yeah, I just felt like it was a thing that I would work really hard at and would do a, uh, hopefully a great job at. Right, <laughs> and, right. that, and that was like, and so I just really wanted to do it. And it's like, why... I mean, you know, just by nature of us moving to Los Angeles, a lot of us aren't from here. And and even if you are, just like that decision to go follow what seems to be impossible, why would you limit that in all of your decisions, all of your decisions along the way? Why would you then then just put up the wall and get become really technical? And, you know, and don't get me wrong, there's obviously a lot of logic that goes into it and every move is important. But you also can't forget to leave room for your original goals and if what you're doing only contributes to the immediate and not the ultimate goal then why are you doing it right i mean sure financially i would have wanted maybe nicer corn dogs i don't know it was more (laughs) money than i'd ever seen right at that point but it just didn't contribute to the ultimate goal so the two things that really did contribute i think to the ultimate goal probably because they really put you on a lot of other people's radar who hadn't known about you yet would have been two things that happened i believe within a week of each other in 2014 mm-hmm. which is number one neighbors comes out you have a scene stealing work in that and then number two your comedy special Gerard carmichael love at the store directed by spike lee for hbo was taped i think that same week that it came out is that right uh, no it was taped that week but the news of it it come so yeah it, it was this uh another perfect storm yeah. <laughs> type week yeah. where it's uh neighbors came out and was like number one and then we were taping a special that wednesday and it was funny because just the day before they weren't going to move forward with the show they picked up the pilots that they were going to do we'd done a presentation at that mm-hmm. point and uh, they just weren't going to move forward with the show. We'd gotten that news, and I'd already started, you know, scheduling other meetings. And then that week happens. This is NBC that changes their mind as a result of that week. Yeah, and also uh, Nick Stoller yes. comes on board. Nick directed great. Neighbors. He directed Neighbors, And yeah. then came on as a co-creator with you of Carmichael Show? Yes. So did something happen there? You guys just hit it off? Yeah, it was a great—I mean, he— you know, created this great environment and it was fun and it was fun riffing with them. We would spend lunch just kind of, you know, riffing together and having fun. And someone uh, picked on me. I say riffing a lot. It's a habit of being a comic, but yeah. I'm, I'm assuming some people are just like, what is riffing? No, some people ask, okay. You're throwing it joking out there. Around. Yeah, joking around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, on, a, you know, just at lunch and stuff and became friends in the process. And so he came on board and it was great and it helped us out a lot. How about with Spike? doing the comedy special how did you guys know about each other he swears that he he saw me in new york before i'm not sure when but (laughs) i called i I had a specific direction that i wanted the special to go in and uh, me and a a friend of mine andrew themelis who's a producer on the special talked about it a lot and then called spike just to to direct and he brought a a specific thing that we wanted because spike's not necessarily known for his comedy i mean there's comedic elements in his movies but what was it that made you think he's the guy because he's not necessarily known for his comedy that's not what you want i don't like things looking zany right (laughs) (laughs) right right, (laughs) it's not necessarily my thing you know like we're just like yeah this is a crazy i didn't i don't want a blown out over lit thing (laughs) i wanted a really specific dark i wanted to capture a saturday night 
at the, in the original room at the comedy store. And you did it there because that was your documentary. I didn't yeah, necessarily yeah. want. Yeah, I wanted. And the comedy that. store because that's where you had started. Yeah, that was the first place I ever did stand up, so, so it felt right for the first special to be in that room. That's just for the record. That's only six years after you first performed there. Yeah, a lot yeah, happened in six years. I started yeah, 2014. We taped. Yeah. Wow. You mentioned that NBC had a different viewpoint of the Carmichael Show concept after that. When did the Carmichael Show concept first reach NBC or anyone else? The Carmichael Show, as it is now, is um, the incarnation where me and the guys who create the original pilot presentation in like 2011, 2012, mm-hmm. I'm at NBC. Uh, with Stoller, it, we just start talking about family, and, and Stoller and, and Ari and Willie were talking about family, and then uh, it just made sense, you know, and, and Stoller was really strong in pushing it toward, like, it should be a family. It should be, you know, the family thing, because all of my stories about, some of my most fun stories about arguing are just from my family. They have the the endurance to argue <laughs> as long as I do. <laughs> you know, a lot of people just give up. Give up, right, right. They, they will just, will for a week, we'll right. have an argument that lasts for a week. You can't wear them down. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And yeah. so we were like, oh, well, let's space the show around that. And then we did. And so that became the pilot that we then shot in 2015. And is that the pilot that did not get picked up? That's the one that did. That's the one, one did. that did not yes. was an earlier incarnation where it was me was working at a shoe store. I had best friend, Alex, girlfriend, Maxine still. And uh, that was a different... And that we were, I mean, we were learning, you know, figuring it out. And not even just in the creative side, but on the... You know, the technical side, I learned a lot through that process. The business side, I learned a lot through that process of, of you know, where business and creative should meet. When that did not get picked up, that first incarnation, were you demoralized? I mean, you'd gotten that close to your dream that you had turned a lot of other things down to do. Yeah. And then it didn't quite make it. What was that moment like? You're a little disappointed, but ultimately it's like, well, you move on. Yeah. And then you go and... I'll just go do stand up and figure it out. And I mean, to be honest, I mean, because of that week, it cushioned the blow a little bit. I'd say it was like, it was like, well, it's still not a bad week. So that week was, as you're saying, so just to completely clarify the timeline, the NBC passes on the first pilot. Yes. Then that week happens. Yeah. The week that they passed on it, I was planning to take my special and neighbors came out. And then NBC says, all right, rework it and give us something say, else. You know, hey, you know what we were thinking? <laughs> Maybe we spoke to some. Right, right. So you just, you guys just reworked it, centered it more on your family. And this version was picked up for a six-episode first season, which aired in a way that I've got to ask you about. Two episodes at a time yeah. on three nights spread over three weeks in late August, which is like the summer doldrums. Again, are you... how you know they love you. I was going to say, do you feel like, <laughs> guys, this is like this is like hanging me out to dry here? Yeah. I was still cool with it. It all worked to the advantage because you're away from the ire. You know, what the advantage of the summer. I mean, always trying to find the advantage in whatever it is that you're doing. Yeah. It's like... Well, you're away from the network eye. We're not the fall show pony. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah, like, yeah. you're like, Everything's we're not that. On we are, we're just summer. It's like, I kind of rather you ignore us a little bit. Yeah. 
Like, just let us do our thing and let us go create. So it worked to the advantage. You guys were following the, was it following the Craig Robinson show? Yeah, originally it was going to be that we are back to back. And then they switched it to, you know, doubling up. I don't want to use the term burn off, but yeah. <laughs> somebody <laughs> yeah, else I can. Apply, yeah. I yeah. <laughs> so on what basis then, I mean, talk about the reception that the show actually got, because obviously they brought you back for 13 episodes, second season, which is still rolling out. Right. And yeah, I'm still rolling out. And it's obviously caught on in a major way. So what happened that changed the way they regarded the show? I think that the response, like, so once again, just being able to do it in the summer, taping at 20th, we're as removed as you can be <laughs> in that circumstance, right. you, as removed as you can be. And I mean, our second episode was a protest episode, you know, where a kid gets shot by an officer. That's the that's after the pilot. Yeah, yeah. You know, and at that point, you know, we did, and it just kind of, but the response to people that did see it responded pretty strongly. I'm really thankful for that. It, yeah, and I mean, a big part of this, and I'm going to ask you more about this in a minute, but just that in some ways there are a lot of things that set it apart from most of the shows that are out there right now, but one of them is that even as a comedy, it's dealing with very serious stuff. And so Mm -hmm. we'll hone in on that in a second, but one other thing that a lot of people have made a lot of is the fact that this is a multi-camera show taped in front of a live audience, a very endangered species kind of a comedy right now that really you and Chuck Lorre are keeping alive for the most part. It's like, (laughs) that's it. But my understanding is you originally intended it to be a single camera show. So what changed and how do you think it impacts the viewing experience that it is a multi-camera show? Originally conceived as single camera and the more I would talk with like Ravi Nandan, who's just I mean, went through this whole process, you know, so great (laughs) with me. Uh, We kind of came to this conclusion that being a stand-up comic and all these things, it just kind of made sense to do a studio audience. And uh, Simran, who was at NBC at the time, uh, Simran Sethi, who's like a a big champion of the show, was like, you know, it brought it up kind of independently of our own thoughts. And we just did. We just, we switched it. And it, it, it just made sense. All the shows that I really admired and all the shows that I loved and the shows that I thought were the most effective were these multi-camera shows so and it doesn't have to be dead the quality I think it just decreased but it 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 didn't have to be dead you know and and it was more fun and it's more of a challenge even to be honest with you it was more of a challenge to try and figure out all right well in this format how do we make it you know a show hopefully and with the intention of being as effective as its predecessors is part of it that with the multi-camera you're basically I mean, if it had been a single camera show, would you have been out on locations? Would you have been a lot more mobile? Well, you know what? A big thing as well for me was the fact that with single camera, inherently momentum drops. It it has to because you're yelling cut. You got to get coverage. You got to. I mean, good luck if you're doing a table. Right. 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 (laughs) You know, like it's just like that's a that's 10 hours. Right. You know, just trying to get everything and all these reactions. And so the momentum drops. The momentum can't drop on our show. We're moving. Yeah. This is going on. They are right there. They're looking at you. The momentum. So just as far as chemistry as well, it's really, really great. Yeah. what do you make of the fact that has been, a lot of people are saying you're the savior of the multi-cam format, you and Chuck again. Like, do you feel like it's important to preserve that format? Is there some inherent value to the format? 
absolutely. And listen, those people are saying a lot. That is a yeah. <laughs> pressure, right? It's just like, but no, but all I genuinely care about is yeah. making the best possible show. Right. Genuinely. And I know that just sounds like the answer to get, but I genuinely try and live in the bubble of let's just make the best possible show, make things that I like, that my friends like, yeah. and make things that respect the intelligence of the viewer. You know, I just really want to respect it. And in the multi-camera format, it's so easy to just completely disrespect their intelligence and to go so absurd in everything from events and coincidence to emotional turns. It's easy to completely disregard the viewer and, and just give them, you know, candy. <laughs> you know, <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. not even good candy. Right, right. But, you know, just like, I just want to respect that. And I want to make a show that you can feel comfortable being a, a you know an adult and watching it didn't used to be that that was such a rare thing i mean like the norman lear shows that your show has been compared to a lot because they actually deal with things of substance like all in the family the jeffersons whatever mm-hmm. why did those go away do you think money <laughs> you know it's it proved so profitable that now it's like you're thinking about advertisers you're thinking about but if we just if this didn't go so far in this direction, then maybe we'll get even more people. <laughs> you know, and, but what happens is you end up losing everybody. Because you're not Because now it's not relatable. Yeah, and yeah. now it's not, I don't know who these people are. Mm-hmm. The audience doesn't, they don't recognize any character anymore. And so it went too far in, in the other direction. I mean, it's less of a risk to go and, you know, have a crazy coincidence yeah, yeah. story. But to speak honestly is harder. Just as an aside, you use your real name and your family members' real names on the show, and we should note that your parents are played by Loretta Devine and David Allen Greer. They are so amazing. Who are great, right? Yeah, they're great. Why, though, why is it important to keep the real names? It holds me accountable. Like, it's I, I it, my name. And so it, and, and it, I mean, it shows, because that's what it is. If it's your show, then you are, you got to go down with the ship. So I'm just trying to keep the thing afloat because. I have to. So how also then do you decide, again, on a very young show to tackle, let's just list a few of these subjects that you guys have dealt with. (laughs) Obviously, I think probably the one that's gotten the most attention is Bill Cosby. But beyond Mm -hmm. that, Black Lives Matter, transgender issues, Muslim neighbors, morning after pills, gun rights, depression, TV comedies with the exception maybe of blackish don't really do this anymore. They don't look at serious, relevant, current issues and and divisive issues like we were just talking about yeah how do you decide which ones you want to get involved with and is there ever a point where you're like you know is this possibly too edgy too kind of out there yeah well see too edgy it goes back to what we're saying about like having some type of genuine emotion attached to what you're arguing because too edgy is when you're just saying a thing just to say it. Right. You know, and these arguments and these episodes come from real conversations and real topics of discussion that I've had amongst my family and amongst my friends and things that have just kind of existed in culture. So it comes from a real place. So it, it can't be too edgy if it comes from a real place. But then, you know, there have been people that are going to take offense to anything. And I think maybe it's more with the stand-up where, you know, you joke about you're starting to appreciate slavery because, you know, without that you might not be in America or things like that. Are there actually any topics that, in your view, you should never touch? 
No, because once again, even you take a thing like that, the, the appreciating slavery because it brought you to America, that's a real, listen, that's a real scary, albeit scary thought, but a real thought of yeah. just like, man, this, it's heinous and disgusting, slavery, you know, just what it did to beautiful human beings is horrible. Also, I really like my iPad. <laughs> it's right. so convenient and it's so light <laughs> and it's right. so American. You know, and right. that exists. Right. And and I'm just the guy that brought up that very real thing that, listen, some people can't accept and they'll just, they'll only hear the words appreciate slavery and right. they'll dismiss it without hearing the full thought or hearing what I'm saying exactly. And, you know. Talk about that kind of a reaction. Have we just all become too PC? Why is that? I mean, now when you can go on the internet and see or say anything, or you can go on cable and streaming and show anything. Why is it that people are more easily offended than ever before? It's not that people are more easily offended. People now have an opportunity to voice their offense mm-hmm. immediately. Mm-hmm. And and so now it's you get caught up in a wave into just throwing a thing out there because right. it's it, the opportunity to do so is there. You right. can be a part of the conversation. No right. one wants to be left out of a conversation. So if you will notice anytime something's trending it goes away you know and and it's not like i mean i don't think prince died i think that trended for what six hours <laughs> then they were on to the, the man next. gave you yeah. 39 albums yeah for six hours <laughs> oh we will miss prince we love you prince purple rain hey, dearly beloved we are gathered here today to get through this thing if i saw that yeah. one more time <laughs> <laughs> and then they're on. To and it. then, and then, wait. Then lemonade comes Beyonce. out. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Which is, I mean, listen, it's right. great that we're all, and that's how the human mind works. Right. But you see it, and people get afraid. Right. People get afraid. It's just like they're right. gonna bring us down. We're on Twitter for some people are angry on Twitter. It's like, yeah, it'll go, it'll go away. Now, are you personally a social media user? More so on like I I didn't have the Twitter app or anything since last Sunday. I deleted it and I brought it back today and excited to tell people that the show comes on tonight but i don't do a lot of tweets i do appreciate you know the flip side is that it is great when people obviously when they show you you know love on mm-hmm. on social media mm-hmm. i love that obviously and it's some really nice people with some great things that they say about your show but i can't get too caught up like in social media because it i i won't complete a thought Right, and also you don't want to give your stuff away for free. You got to fill enough things between your stand-up and your show and whatever. Yeah, on like, every level, yeah. on every level, it makes sense to just to be, you know, to have some discernment. Yeah, yeah. And and for me, I'll never complete a thought. I would just keep checking it, and she, it, <laughs> so I just I don't get on there a lot. So let's come back to the episode that I think, and please correct this if it's wrong, but I think the one that probably had the most people talking was the Cosby episode. Yeah. Is that right? Probably, yeah. So now from, you have an interesting journey to that episode, which is that you actually met this guy before all hell broke loose, right? Yeah. And it's funny because I think I, like from season one, I most uh, talked about episode, I think was the protest episode. Yes. And that was like, it's all some type of personal, like I, the, the story I told in that episode about cops pulling guns was a real story. I said it in my stand-up and said it on the episode. This is where, because you fit a description. Because I fit a description, right? right? And with the Cosby thing, it, it comes from this challenge. I mean, you know what's funny? I mean, having met him not only makes it a little personal, but yeah. I think what was interesting about that topic is it is kind of personal for all of us. 
You know, it's the same thing when Prince dies, it feels personal. When yeah. Michael Jackson dies, it feels personal. When this happens to Bill Cosby, it feels personal, I think, to a lot of people because he was a figure in your life for so long. And, and you're like, oh, do I let all of those great memories go for these accusations, which are horrible and painful? So you had grown up as a fan of his comedy? Yeah. And then how did it come about that you guys got to meet? Because that must have been a huge deal. He invited me over right around the time of the deal with NBC. He wanted to talk about television. He wanted to talk about uh, stand-up. And he's kind of done that with a lot of guys, you know, before the comics. And you all have your conversation with Cosby. You left that feeling good about the, he, that, you know, in everything that you'd experienced, he was a good guy, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just, I mean, at his home, he was nice. He, we talked stand-up and yeah. we talked television. Because, I mean, that's the thing that's so, I think, you know, after 50-plus people, everybody now accepts, like, I think for the most part that something terrible happened there. But it's like, if you had said to any of us two years ago or whenever that was that you went over there, like, that Bill Cosby did this, it would be like today if somebody came to me and said, like, Alan Alda kills animals or something. I mean, it just seems like <laughs> oh, so— Oh, I couldn't even handle that. I mean, Alan yeah, Alda. no, I mean, it's yeah, so unfathomable. Just, just strangling a dog. Yeah, yeah, that's— oh. <laughs> No, but I mean, it's just kind of, so the idea of then turning that into an episode, was it for you, it's sort of a way of working through it and also... More so, it was, I think, an important conversation that needed to be had. And because we're we're not even really talking about the accusations in the episode. What we talk about, we kind of put the mirror, like what the intention and a lot of things in my stand-up and in the show is to kind of hold up a mirror and go, well, what is this saying about you, your acceptance? This is about your acceptance and where you draw your line. Uh, as a line wrote for Loretta in the episodes. Like, it's all about where you draw your line. And we bring up a lot of like you know instances where we may be living contradictions of, of morality. And so that's kind of what the episode was about. So it just felt like an interesting conversation to have. And you said you would have... Around that topic. ...hoped that he or an accuser could have watched it and found something valuable in it? Yeah. I think what our show... If I may, I think we have like one of the, probably the most balanced <laughs> arguments. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like really, really balanced because that it comes from just growing up. My family, what I love about us is we seldom agreed on anything from you know dessert to OJ's <laughs> trial. <laughs> you know? where, all right, now you got to say where are you on OJ? I mean, I'm of the mindset that I mean that's a lot of evidence <laughs> and some really great lawyers. <laughs> Right. And, well, you know, then my dad's on the fence. It's right. like, oh, it's always that argument. And right. so on our show, everything is about, well, what about this, though? Right. But what, and co- you know, and just to argue and just to figure it out and find some truth. So Dave Chappelle, is that somebody that you also look up to? or That's great. Yeah, right. So it seems like the thing that, if I understand correctly, like that would disillusion him from the business to some extent was that people were taking his comedy on the surface level and not seeing some of the deeper intentions of his humor. I don't know. Is that how you understand it as well? Yeah. I mean, you know, he's definitely like this artist. And then, you know, making a television show, things can get lost in translation. I mean, there's so many moving pieces and you're one person and you know the intention of your art. And sometimes if it's, you know, if it may not be received through something the way that you intended it to be. So, I mean... Can you understand already from just, you know, 
it doesn't seem to bother you, but, you know, you get flack when you take on controversial topics. You know, I mean, the example that I think it was one of these profiles of you, maybe The New Yorker, said was that when you, as Gerard Carmichael, an African-American who is joking about looking in a baby's eyes and seeing that they're going to work at Wendy's or whatever, Mm -hmm. that you can say that. But if certain other people in the audience laugh at that, you're trying to tell something maybe on a subtextual level. Mm-hmm. But certain audience members... They may not be receiving the re- joke. Right, the they way. repurpose it. Yeah. Is that something that troubles you? No, because it's something that they have to deal with. I'm, I'm bringing up the thought. And how you deal with it and your reaction, you know, hopefully it highlights something about you. Or, or And if it's something that needs to change, hopefully you now have the consciousness to change it. <laughs> you know, it's like I am very responsible, especially with Stan, very responsible for the intention of what I say. Like, it, and I, and I, I hold myself accountable to the intention. And then, I mean, you just can't. You can't control how everyone receives everything. Right. And there are some wacky people out there that's they're gonna yeah, yeah yeah there are people that take very simple things that that may not even have a, you know subtext and just <laughs> it's like you got that from that like you can't yeah right. you can't where do these ideas or or takes on subjects like where does inspiration strike you most often a lot of times in the shower <laughs> Aaron Sorkin says the same thing that's yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Well, listen I mean I, you're I in mean, good company it, that's the yeah. best company yeah. Walking around, I like walking around, uh, conversations, you know, with with family and friends Mm -hmm. and just kind of talking out of thought when you're really excited about something and you just, and you have all these thoughts on it and you talk to someone who brings a different perspective and then, you know, something beautiful comes from that. So just kind of being around. Uh, It it was uh, Duke Ellington who who talked about, uh, you know, absorbing the day. You just walk around and you absorb the day. And as soon as you're about to lie down, that's when it strikes. And a lot of times that happens. Yeah, yeah. So last thing, you're not even 30 yet, right? And you have already realized your childhood dream. So what is there that is left for you to do? What's the next thing? What's the next bar you've got to meet? I mean, there's still so much even within... It's just stop trying to give me astronaut syndrome here. <laughs> There's nowhere to go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's still so much right. for me to do. I mean, I still right. got a lot of work to do. I got to, right. you know, it, the stand-up is always these new challenges to figure out. The, the show, I still want it to grow. It's still, you know, it's not perfect. You want to you see all these elements. that It could be stronger and better. And, and, I, and I want that, you know, for the show, for me, for the actors, for the crew, the film you know, it's a, a new territory. And, and so it's it's always something to figure out. But as long as, for me, it's just like making sure it just comes from something that I genuinely care about and that, that I feel strongly for. And that's a lot of fun. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. It's so fun, just whether it's the stand-up or the, or the show or whatever. I just can't tell you how much I appreciate thank it. Thank you very much for talking to me. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you. Hey.